when I was out in wild places. It was no longer about me being in wildness. It was me feeling really tiny in these vast landscapes. And I found I liked that feeling. Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's more critical than ever that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries, a podcast in partnership with Rolex's Perpetual Planet Initiative and the Washington Post Creative Group. Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative support explorers, innovators, and visionaries who strive to protect our natural world. I'm proud to be bringing you some of their stories from the cutting edge of conservation. On this episode, I get to speak with Chris Tompkins, a conservationist who has committed her life to protecting land and restoring biodiversity across South America. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Good, Alex. Nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. We know each other through Jimmy Chin. Yeah, we share a lot of mutual friends, but then we've met in in Patagonia in the place. Yeah, that's right. We've had... Uh, ice cream together down there. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> Doma Blanca. <laughs> yeah, Doma Blanca. The best best ice cream in Shelton. Yeah. And uh, Doug talked a lot about you, even though you were pretty quiet, I think, when the two of you were together, because these very extreme people, they float into our lives. I mean, Yvonne, Doug, you, Jimmy, um, there are so many of us. And um, I think... We we are sort of coming out of the same tribe. Uh, I guess to really start from the beginning, what what prompted your interest in conservation? Well, you know, I worked with Yvonne Chouinard for the last 50 years. Yvonne Chouinard was the founder, owner of Chouinard Equipment and Patagonia Clothing Company. And in the 70s, he was really starting to think about what was taking place in the natural world and really saw the front end of the degradation that was unfolding. And really, he was my mentor in beginning to be able to see what was actually happening outside rather than just assuming things were fine. How did you meet Yvonne? Well, I met him when I was 15. He rented the beach house next to our parents' beach house. And I went off to college and coming home from college, my mother informed me that I had to get a job. And I went to Yvonne and said, I have, to, I have to have a job and I have to have one fast. And he said, okay, come work for me. And then a year and a half, two years later, he decided he wanted to start making clothing. And so we did, which became Patagonia Company. So, so talk me through the, the birth of Patagonia. Well, I don't know, Alex, have you ever seen some of the early jackets we made? <laughs> they were pretty funky monkey. We were playing it very close to the cuff in the early years. And then, you know, it, it just took off. Yeah. And so were you basically the CEO from, from the beginning or what, what was your role in the company? Yeah, I, d- I did it for 23 years. And so what prompted you to finally leave Patagonia? I, I really did sit in my chair and think, God, I'm 40 years old. I could be doing this when I'm 50, 60, 70. And I, I felt so claustrophobic. Really, it had nothing to do with Patagonia. It had to do with me. I needed to change my life. And there was no going back. Had you always loved the outdoors? We grew up on our great-grandfather's ranch. And so four generations on a ranch, a lot of cousins. 
we were outside more than inside, probably pressed to be outside more than inside. So it became normal to me. When I met Yvonne and then all the people whom I met through that tribe, you belong to the same tribe, you know who they are, when I was out in wild places. It was more about me. And I think eventually, very profoundly, it was no longer about me being in wildness. It was me feeling really tiny in these vast landscapes. And I found I liked that feeling. I mean, I'm talking to the man who is at the top of the totem pole in terms of these kinds of things, but it was a palpable transformation of who I am in the in the circle of life. And I did not understand that in the beginning, but I really understand it now. And then Doug and I ran into each other in the early 90s down in Argentina and fell in love and we left our business lives and started working full-time in conservation activist issues and so on. After a successful corporate career, Chris turned her attention to conservation projects with local communities in South America. So what is uh, Tompkins Conservation? It was started a little over 30 years ago, and my husband, Doug Tompkins, and I started buying up land in Chile and Argentina to preserve it and eventually donate it all back to the two countries in the form of national parks. And so in 2000, actually over in Argentina, I bought 85,000 acres, or I can't remember now, 185,000 acres or 85. <laughs> it's big, right on the coast and, and donated to the country of Argentina. It was the first coastal national park in the country. And then we thought, well, God, we can do this. So then we really cranked it up and we started um, buying a lot more land. So finally, after 30 years, we've 14 or 15 national parks, just under 15 million acres. I mean, to be to be honest, I don't really know what acres are when you get past the 10 to 20 acres, because I can kind of visualize 20 acres. But do, do you know how big Yosemite is? So... Yosemite National Park is uh, nine hundred thousand acres. Oh, so you're buying two Yosemites? That's that. Yeah. This is this is our new metric. Saying so you're buying one Yosemite, you're buying two Yosemites, you're buying half a Yosemite. This is the yeah. Honold metric of <laughs> land, ma- the measurement of land and sea. Yeah, we need a good acronym. Uh, Honold's land management acronym. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's very good. <laughs> and along the way, midway, we started realizing that some of the parks that we were involved in. A lot of the species were missing. So we just decided, well, we're not in the scenery business. We have to get in and figure out how to bring these species back. And that's really become half our work now. Can you explain rewilding? Each species is very different. In the case of the first one we tried to do, we thought, let's let's take a species that we think would be moderately easy, knowing nothing about it. So we settled on the giant anteater. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've, I've seen it. Incredibly cute. They are. Like, like sort of insanely cute, like sort of They're a cartoon. insanely cute. Yeah. So nobody would give us any anteaters and there weren't any to be had. We couldn't go capture a few because nothing was left. So we started taking orphans and uh, we built this quarantine center and we started bringing them in. We had a, a little tiny hospital. We had unbelievable veterinary surgeons and 
little by little, they recovered enough or they were old enough if they were little orphans. And we started putting them out in the wild and putting little milkshakes out for them because we were worried that they would disperse, but maybe, you know, could they really feed themselves? And today we have 400 and some wild anteaters out. They breed, have been breeding in the wild for probably eight to 10 years now. In the big picture, though, is the point of rewilding to just, you know, recreate a healthy ecosystem? Exactly. Yeah, that's the short end of the story, that we realized that we didn't want to be just in the scenery business. We had no intention of creating these places, donate them, that the infrastructure, all of that is there. But the territory was actually not functioning. And that really changed our work 180 degrees. So... If we take something on, we're going to bring everybody back such that the territory is ecologically functioning optimally. I mean, you guys are now 25 years into being neighbors with some of these communities. How do some of those original neighbors view the projects? And especially now that you actually have turned all the land back over to the to the host countries, you know, as national parks, like it basically does belong to the people again. Has that changed the relationship with the local communities? Has that, have people started to see tourism? Yeah. And, and, you know, you have almost a generation and a half of people in the community have actually helped build these parks. So uh, it's changed tremendously. Yeah. Do you, do you see local pride in the parks now? Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if people have spent 20 years helping to build the park, because I mean, they, they must be Definitely. pretty psyched. How does your work connect to climate change? So every time you're taking a pristine area out of harm's way, reduce the threats toward it, or you're restoring large tracts of land that had been used in this case in Patagonia for, for livestock grazing, then it influences the carbon sequestration. If it's pristine and it gets to stay pristine, that's great. If it's damaged and it begins to restore itself, that's a plus toward climate change. What I'm hearing from from your projects is that rewilding is really about helping the planet to function in the way it's supposed to. Yeah, you're trying to get it back to a steady state. Chris's work has benefited from partnerships with those who share her commitment to rewilding the planet. So in 2019, Rolex launched its Perpetual Planet Initiative. And what does that initiative mean for you? I'll tell you that I was so happy about it because it's one of the few companies who very specifically is going after increased planetary health. I mean, really throwing themselves behind it. We're really happy to be part of this and grateful, actually. We love being associated with the companies we think are the best in the world. So what is uh, Rolex's connection to rewilding Chile and Argentina and, and how are they working together? So one of the great benefits of having Rolex and that team involved in rewilding Chile and rewilding Argentina is that the conversation about rewilding is greatly expanded and referenced by one of the great companies in the world. So for me, it's really important that people take this on kind of a new generation of conservation is not enough to just protect territory. 
hearing you talk about rewilding just sort of made me think of an analogy with human health being like the the difference between lifespan and, and sort of health span. Where it's like it's one thing to protect land. It's another thing to actually have healthy, functioning ecosystem. It's like it's, it's one thing to live to 100, but it's another thing to be running marathons at 95. You know, exactly. I'm going to steal that from you. Yeah, you should. You should. What are the benefits of being a partner of Rolex generally? It's like having a mirror image of yourself. So when Rolex steps out and is supporting really some of the best rewilding projects in the world and with tremendous results, that's a message. There's the outright representation of supporting rewilding, but just the relationship, just the partnership between Rolex and all of us is a message that has tremendous power. Yeah. Do you think it, do you think it offers a lot of validation for the, the rewilding projects? Yes, I do. When I was in Geneva, I met with the CEO of Rolex and had lunch with him and, and the head of marketing for the company. And we had an incredible hour and a half together talking nonstop about our work, but also what makes Rolex move forward. What, what is it interested in? What are the value systems of the company? That all comes out. And they're very much in line with my own ethos and would have been Doug's and yours. And uh, no, it's important. We, we value this greatly. Despite the clear challenges, Chris is hopeful about the future of conservation. What are some of the short-term goals for Tompkins Conservation? Shortly, you're not going to hear the Tompkins name in the future, which is exactly how we we want it. We don't need to be that story. I get asked a lot, well, what is your, what do you hope Doug's and your legacy will be? And I always say, I'm not interested in the last 30 years. I'm proud of it. And I'm happy we, we've done what we've done with our, all the teams. What I'm interested in, of what is happening right now and what's happening in the future. What advice would you give to somebody who's interested in this kind of work? So there are lots of ways to become involved. And and if you're in an area where you know that conservation is is either taking already taking place or is just getting going, get out of bed and, and go volunteer with whatever skills you have. The first thing really is always just showing up. What advice would you give to the average person on how they can help keep the planet perpetual? I really think that most of us are abdicating our future. We, we're we convinced that as a single person, there's really nothing we can do, whether it's climate change or whatever's taking place in their neighborhoods, that there's really nothing they can do. And, and we fall into this cycle of what I call just abdicating your future. And that is the very last thing somebody needs to do. You know, I think a lot about hope and people ask me, oh, Chris, do you have hope? Do you not have hope? And I finally decided that we have to earn hope. You can't have hope unless you work toward it. Every single person has to get out of bed every day and decide actively to do something toward a healthy future for yourselves and your families, but also for the non-human world. We are not apart from any of this. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, where you are, what your circumstances are. It is 
truly a universal need and possibility. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree that showing up is the, the most important step. When you go to the base of a climb, you don't know how that's going to unfold. And when you want to take control of your own future and participate in something, you don't know how it's going to unfold. You just have to take that first step and someone will be there to grab you and show you the way. I promise. That was the incredible conservationist, Chris Tompkins. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, and leave a review to help others find it. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Christina Mittermeier and Paul Nicklin, two marine biologists and visual storytellers inspiring action amongst their millions of followers across the globe. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the next generation of environmental innovators at Rolex.org. Catch you next time.